Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Olga Bertelsen, author of In the Labyrinth of the KGB, Ukraine's Intelligentsia in the 1960s-1970s, published by Lexington Books in 2022. Olga Bertelsen is Associate Professor of Global Security and Intelligence at Tiffin University. With special interests in Ukrainian and Russian history and intelligence, her research focuses on political violence, bioterrorism, covert action, counterintelligence, and U.S. national and global security. Dr. Bertelsen is the author and editor of five books and a number of book chapters and articles that explore the issues of genocidal practices, state violence, U.S. national and global security, and Russian covert operations of ideological subversion. She's a recipient of numerous prestigious and national and international awards and a speaker at various international conferences, forums, assemblies, including the United Nations. Hello, Olga, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Natalia. Thank you for inviting me. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, I would thank like to start with the subtitle of your book, which is Ukraine, Ukraine's Intelligentsia in the 1960s, 1970s. And the book itself is based on the analysis of KGB archival sources. Um, would you introduce the characters of your book? Certainly. Um, this is a, a story or a historical study, if you will, that um, absorbs uh, stories about, first of all, Soviet repression uh, and the struggles of, of uh, writers against the KGB's psychological and uh, physical abuse. But I'm writing not only about uh, the writers in Kharkiv themselves because they established uh, during these particular decades that I examined the 1960s and 70s they established links with uh, with uh, um, other representatives of Shizdesatniki uh, actors um, theater directors actors so it was just a milieu of of Shizdesatniki in Kharkiv and very little uh, has been written about this about this particular people in the first capital of, of Ukraine. So in your book, you really offer a very uh, meticulous analysis of the documents and, and all kinds of archival sources. But um, would you mention at least maybe two or three main characters that you really appreciate or that you would like to introduce to the Anglophone audiences? Um First, uh, it was just, of course, uh, Volodymyr Bryuhin, uh, the person uh, who is, was, he passed away um, a few years ago, a brilliant writer, a brilliant literary critic, uh, and uh, he 
was nurtured by by the Khrushchev Thor. He was an independent thinker also. And actually this idea about uh, the book itself emanated from him. He suggested uh, to me, he said, listen, Ola, please write this book, write something that uh, would explain uh, how we felt, uh, mm. what we did, uh, how we developed as, as writers or, or we didn't develop perhaps during this particular time, the most difficult time for, for the intelligentsia in, in Ukraine. So this is just uh, a very significant uh, figure and um, character in my book. Uh, actually, a friend of mine who um, read, uh, and he was just also very good at English, French, and German, so he could read the text and and um, make his comments as as I, I was writing it. So this is just uh, one character. The second, uh, and we all have personal reasons, of course, to write. Uh, or to conduct our research. And um, uh, the second character is my father. Um, he was a Ukrainian poet, Robert Kritiakov. Uh, and of course, we tend uh, to write uh, about something that we know best. Uh, and because I was growing up together or among those people who visited our home, uh, who, who were present constantly. He, he was in, uh, my father was in front of my eyes constantly. I knew his friends. I had an opportunity to speak to them uh, after my father uh, passed away, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that that was just the uh, so, sort of second um, character. and. Uh, a tragic figure, actually, if you think about his life. And I, because of this book, by the way, I learned more about him um, through his friendships, through his friends, uh, through archival documents. And for me, it was just a very valuable um, sort of uh, work from, from this perspective. And uh, uh, I wanted also to to uh, examine those people who uh, were representatives of of other of uh, other ethnic groups, if if you will, because Bruggen, for instance, had uh, a lot of bloods that were sort of he was a mixture, an ethnic mixture. That's how he referred to himself. He was. Uh, part German, part Russian, part Jew, part, part, part Ukrainian. So, um, and uh, my father was an ethnic Russian, but he happened to be a, a Ukrainian poet. And I wanted to uh, also to write about those people who represented other ethnic groups, such as Russians or um, Azerbaijanis or Georgians. And we, I have plenty of those people who represented these ethnic groups. Uh, the only uh, thing that uh, sort of um, was not the only, but one of those striking uh, findings uh, that or revelations I learned about all those people of various ethnic groups, and it's amazing. Uh, I felt that what united them is just not only their love for literature, uh, but also their unity that uh, was on the basis of their, um, I would say, uh, 
common shared experiences with with the KGB and their love for their place, Ukraine, where many of them were born in Ukraine. Some of them were not born in, in Ukraine. Some of them came uh, as little children, uh, like, um, for instance, Tritiakov to, to, to Kharkiv. However, a lot of them uh, developed some kind of affinity with Kharkiv, with Ukraine. They embraced Ukrainian cultural traditions, despite the fact that they would ethnically Jews or ethnically Ukrainians <clears throat> or ethnically Russians. And that was just uh, something fascinating um, that, uh, you know, it was just a surprise to me how uh, they are uh, embrace this place intellectually and, and physically and, and mentally. So in many ways, this book uh, is quite personal to you. She certainly, certainly, Natalia, because, uh, again, I, I just want to emphasize this, uh, that, you know, sometimes um, historians are being accused uh, of being too close to their characters, but at the same time, uh, this particular closenessness, or, or uh, I don't know, this, um, uh, my personal experiences growing up in close proximity to those people, knowing them, um, provided me with some kind of insight. Absolutely, mm -hmm. it just added to my uh, to my knowledge, uh, to my understanding of, of those people. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe it's not a sort of a vice or a shortcoming of this narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I just have a, a quick follow-up question on that. Um, so what was the most challenging part when you were writing uh, about this time period and about this milieu uh, to which you have some personal relation, some personal connection? So um, th the thing is, when uh, we try to deliver right this information to the audiences, which are probably are not very much familiar with what we know, it sounds like or it looks like we have to provide some background so we have to provide some additional information so what was this kind of um, um, information that you felt so close to you and you maybe were dismissing it because it's such a natural part of you but while you were writing this book you realized that this is something that your audiences are most likely not familiar with um, it was, uh, to me, it was, uh, first of all, very painful to uh, to uh, make a decision about how much I should reveal. Uh, because um, at the same time, um, I, I believe that uh, perhaps the more we know about how the KGB abused these people, uh, because uh, this was just the most, uh, I would say, vulnerable group, the intelligentsia in, in, in the Soviet Union, in, and particularly in Ukraine, because they were associated with nationalism, of course, with some kind of rebellion, with independent thinking. But for me, it was uh, sort of a painful decision to um, analyze what happened to those people, including my father, uh, when they tried to commit suicide, or perhaps uh, it was just an attempt on the part of, of the KGB to physically eliminate uh, not only a few of them, but uh, uh, um, sort of um, many of them, 
actually. And I believe today, I have no doubt that, um, for instance, those tram incidents that happened in Ukraine quite frequently, it was just a certain a sort of practice uh, mm -hmm. on the part of the KGB. They uh, tried to recruit as many people as possible. I remember how one uh, KGB officer said that, you know, uh, it was just a widespread phenomenon. Of course, we tried to uh, recruit um, people who were writers uh, so that they uh, became informants and we knew more about this particular um, environment. However, it was just not an easy task. He said that um, we were actually recruiting everything that moved. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a direct, actually, quotation. But at the same time, um, it was just not an easy task. And uh, when they understood that this person is absolutely um, recalcitrant, we cannot do much with him. Plus, he is a thinker. He has to be physically eliminated. And we we uh, have a number of uh, examples what happened in Kharkiv. That's why I argued, I, I'm not suggesting that something like this didn't happen in other cities uh, of Ukraine. But at the same time, um, these cases were uh, noticeable, pronounced. There were a lot of them, uh, and uh, that's why I wanted to write about what happened to my father uh, in this particular um, respect, what happened to Leonida Smolovsky, who was a brilliant writer of, of Jewish origin, um, and uh, um, and what happened to Vasil Bordr, who actually they managed to kill. So, um, and I think uh, this particular, it's just not only about the aspect of uh, of um, the KGB practices, strategies, and tactics, but uh, the more we share with our readers, the deeper picture they will have, uh, the more knowledge, after all, they will have about how um, these people tried to survive and what they did actually um, being part of this milieu, about being part of this environment. So we need this uh, information. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was just not easy, of course, to, to decide what, 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 how much I wanted to write about this, but I wanted to absolutely to share with my readers what I know and what I've discovered also in um, the Ukrainian archives on this topic. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you also uh, draw attention to multi-ethnicity that is quite um, uh, intrinsic um, in Ukraine. And uh, would you just uh, um, a comment on this uh, necessity, I would say on this vital necessity to engage with uh, multi-ethnicity uh, when we talk about Soviet Ukraine as well? Because today we uh, talk about multi-ethnicity in Ukraine more and more on a more uh, engaging and more serious way, um, but um, more often than not, we still stick to some clear distinctions like um, Ukrainians, but we use Ukrainians um, uh, and we do mean uh, different ethnicities as well. So um, would, you, would you comment on this um, um, significance of emphasizing multi-ethnicity of um, those groups that we analyze? 
Certainly. Uh, and by the way, this is one of those reasons uh, which inspired me uh, actually to, to write this book, because Kharkiv, historically, Kharkiv um, had a, a, not only a rich intellectual and, and literary history, but also uh, it has been uh, historically, like you mentioned, populated uh, by various ethnic um, groups contributing to its um, diverse cultural traditions. So how were they perceived uh, by the KGB or by uh, by the Soviet authorities? Um, their task, from my perspective, and that's what my book demonstrates, they, their task was, and especially the, those, um, the uh, authorities in Kharkiv, their task was to um, nurture not Ukrainian or Jewish writers. They wanted to raise a generation or cultivate a generation of Soviet writers. Mm -hmm. So that's why they try to, despite the, the fact that we uh, are all familiar with their official rhetoric, right? Friendship of, of the friendship of people of mm -hmm. various uh, nationalities, uh, internationalism, but what they did uh, they clandestinely try to provoke some kind of hostilities among these ethnic groups um, along uh, these ethnic lines, because it's easier to, to um, isolate these uh, individuals and, and deal with them individually, rather than to deal with them as a group, as a coherent group, uh, which uh, began to exhibit some kind of solidarity, unity, etc., etc. So, um, I mean, uh, it, it, from this particular perspective, it, 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 for me, it was just very interesting to to learn more about how uh, the, the authorities uh, and, and the KGB uh, dealt with this particular situation, multi uh, the multi-ethnic community, multicultural community, multi, by the way, multilingual mm -hmm. community also of people who spoke different uh, languages. By the way, we have to remember that in the 1960s, um, writers of, of um, Jewish uh, origin, meaning uh, those who initially wrote in Yiddish, uh, they were only a few left because uh, we, we can re uh, read today beautiful uh, work um, by Gennady Estrach, uh, and he will um, he illustrates uh, this particular sort of approach to the Jewish problem and to to uh, the uh, Yiddish culture um, in general, not only in, in Ukraine but generally speaking in the Soviet Union. Uh, so there were even people who, in re uh, their private lives, spoke Yiddish but they didn't have an opportunity because uh, these sort of uh, opportunities were eliminated for this group of people to publish their work in their own language, in Yiddish. Only later, I believe in 19, I think uh, from 1961, they began to publish uh, uh, their work in Yiddish in um, so, um, Sovietish Gameland, right, in, in this literary journal that was established in Moscow. But uh, for, for the KGB, it was a challenge, absolutely. But they wanted to homogenize this group, uh, in a sense, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, work with individual writers 
somehow because to work with a group uh, seemed seem probably seem challenging to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you talk a little bit about those issues or topics which were uh, discussed by Ukrainian writers, for for instance, Ukrainian poets, or, or uh, during the time period that you're analyzing. You mentioned that your father uh, was a poet, and uh, I'm wondering what were those issues that um, he was commenting maybe on, or he was uh, writing his uh, poetry on. And the reason I'm asking is that uh, sometimes we hear this statement that um, um, poets or writers should be detached from the um, political sphere, from the um, uh, public sphere, meaning official official dimension. But, um, uh, well, uh, I'm not sure if I believe in this kind of detachment anymore. So, and I'm wondering if you have any uh, comment on those topics that um, writers were engaging, and for what reasons? Uh, Natalia, this is just a... a, a simple and at the same time a complex question because we shouldn't forget that uh, all those um, cultural institutions, the headquarters for instance of the writers union or the headquarters of the literal journal if we're talking about Kharkiv precisely uh, the literary journal, the headquarters of the literary journal, journal proper they were bugged so eventually, uh, eventually, the writers realized that they cannot discuss much uh, being physically present in this particular, in their offices. So that's why they created an alternative space, um, such as cafes, little restaurants, outs- parks, where they uh, had their favorite places in Kharkiv, their favorite benches, <laughs> where they were sitting and discussing those political topics. But uh, what I remember very distinctly that uh, the majority of them um, stated that in Kharkiv, they tried to, uh, unless there were uh, uh, groups of two, uh, meeting, um, but if there were more people, they tried to avoid these political topics because if uh, the groups were sort of uh, contained three or four or five or more people, uh, there was always a risk that among them there were informants. So I remember distinctly how um, several of them talked about their uh, trips to Galicia right, to, to a Western Ukraine. And there, for, for whatever reason, they felt a little bit uh, freer, meaning uh, that uh, they uh, met people who, first of all, uh, were not completely Soviet. They were not completely Sovietized. We remember what happened with this part of Ukraine, right? So, um, and uh, they uh, be- they were provoked, actually, by those Galician writers uh, from from Ivano-Frankivsk, from Lviv, uh, to discuss some kind of political topics. Uh, moreover, there were suggestions on their part. On the part of, of Lviv writers, for instance, we have to uh, join our efforts. We have to unite somehow because uh, um, something that we observe today is just very disturbing. Uh, our 
literature doesn't officially exist. And the Russian writers are in a better position than us, Ukrainian writers, because we are abused. We we are writing in, in the uh, sort of... Uh, and uh, put our uh, works in the literally in the bottom drawer and, and forget about this because there is no prospects of, of uh, you know, to publish this work. So that's uh, the, that, that, that's the moment, uh, the moments when they could discuss these political topics, being elsewhere, outside, I mean, the, those um, space of abusive space by political space of, of Kharkiv that the authorities created. Uh, and I was not part of, uh, sometimes it was just a very uh, rare opportunity when I was part of, of this particular gathering, um, outside gathering. But uh, um, inside, I spent a lot of time in the Writers of Union when I was a child, when I was an utterly absent and later. Uh, but I don't remember that those people discussed those political topics inside the headquarters of their sort of cultural institutions where, uh, where they belong, actually. In their offices. So that's just uh, the saddest part. Uh, they, they were very cautious, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. extremely cautious. Mm -hmm. So, and um, in your book, you also uh, emphasize the restalinization uh, symptoms. And uh, um, I was wondering um, what uh, uh, these uh, symptoms uh, signaled and why did restalinization um, become possible again. Uh, you also mentioned Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. Uh, and um, uh, however, there was some return, right, to um, uh, this uh, stalinization uh, in, uh, in Ukraine specifically. Specifically, but still, um, well, well, keeping in mind these two um, uh, moments, right? On the one hand, uh, denunciation; on the other hand, rationalization. So, how do you how do you interpret this kind of constant back and forth between uh, repression and some liberation? Then again, repression and probably some some thaw, but very very uh, briefly, and then back again to some oppressive uh, methods under the uh, Soviet Union. Natalia, I'm uh, reading uh, very well frequently uh, about those uh, back and forth sort of um, developments, but in Ukraine, I didn't have an opportunity uh, on the basis of what I, uh, I've been reading, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, particular development back and forth. Mm -hmm. After 1961, uh, the process of relaxation was over completely. Uh, and uh, by the way, this was one of those uh, motivations that also inspired me to write this book, because I read uh, over and over again those uh, narratives about what was happening with the, not only with the Ukrainian intelligentsia, but generally speaking, with the Soviet intelligentsia in the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s. And when I read this uh, a narrative, for instance, written from a Russocentric perspective, when uh, some author um, worked or bases his or her arguments only uh, because uh, she or he worked in Moscow archives. I mean, uh, this um, sort of approach seems to me uh, 
uh, a little bit superficial. Uh, and uh, I shared this sort of narratives with, by the way, with Bruggen, and we discussed them. And he said, it's just amazing how uh, the situation in Ukraine was absolutely different from what we potentially, or some historians today can potentially observe what was happening in Moscow or in Leningrad or, or in some other Russian cities. Because uh, this period of relaxation um, was completely curtailed, I mean, by, by 1961. First of all, let's not forget that Khrushchev sincerely wanted to change something. No doubt about it. But first of all, he lacked uh, some kind of experience. He didn't have a team. I, perhaps his idea about some reforms or liberation of, of the, uh, the liberation process of this uh, regime was very, they were very good, his ideas, but uh, he couldn't implement this, this, um, these reforms. And don't forget, Stalin um, was known for his, remember, for his anti-Semitism, but so, so was Khrushchev. And he pretended, by the way, even after the, before and after the 20th uh, Party Congress, that the Jewish question, by the way, doesn't exist uh, in the Soviet Union and particularly in, in Ukraine. So he kept silent about the, the massacre of Ukrainian uh, Jews by the Nazis at Babi Yar, right? Uh, and was responsible actually for, uh, for the deportation of many Jews uh, from Ukraine in the late uh, 1940s. So, I mean, we have to understand that uh, uh, that's, by the way, uh, that's uh, was his actually deviation from the party line, and I believe he wanted to distance also, among other things, that he wanted to create the land of plenty. He wanted to change a little bit the political system, the economy of the regime, but at the same time, he wanted to distance himself from uh, this brutal um, Stalin's repressions, right, from this cluster of, of genocides that uh, Stalin committed um, against his own people, and Khrushchev was part of it, part of this process. So uh, after 1961, you are asking what kind of symptoms um, did they begin uh, begin to observe? I mean, the right is the intelligence. So first of all, um, this particular um, tendency became visible in Moscow. Uh, remember what happened uh, during this particular time? We're talking about 1956, 1957. Um, uh, Pasternak, uh, Pasternak's uh, Dr. Zhivago was published abroad, remember? And then uh, all this um, sort of representatives of pa party leaders, the representatives of the KGB attacked Pasternak like a pack of dogs. So everybody realized already in 1950, and Khrushchev didn't do anything to protect Pasternak, if you remember this story, right? So uh, Khrushchev realized that uh, he will have a very strong, he would have a very strong resistance, and he did. So uh, it was a very complex dynamic, and perhaps we have to write um, another narrative about this, um, I think, infighting, the infighting uh, within the party, within the Soviet government. And, uh, uh, but we know for sure that, that Khrushchev was not the person 
who uh, would uh, be sincerely interested in full reforms, full re reforms. I mean, uh, the liberation of, of, of uh, the intelligentsia, are providing uh, uh, them with some kind of opportunity to create, freely create, freely think, uh, freely move across the borders and so on and so forth. He believed, uh, first of all, in this um, process of central control. He couldn't allow this. Uh, by the way, he discovered for himself in, uh, immediately after the 20th Party Congress, he immediately discovered that the intelligentsia became too powerful in the Soviet Union, and he didn't like it. And that's why, perhaps, I, I believe his son, Sergei Khrushchev, when he wrote these volumes of memoirs, he uh, didn't discuss much uh, his uh, sort of relationships, I mean, uh, his father's relationship with the intelligentsia. Maybe it was also painful for him, and maybe it, uh, it, it, it was just a shame for him even to, to go in, into this deeply into this analysis or discussion mm -hmm. yeah well um, um uh, thank you for uh, thank you for this commentary um it made me think about a conversation with um Miroslav Marinovich who visited IU a couple of months ago uh and during this conversation he was asked a question about his interaction with other gulag prisoners particularly with Russians for instance and he also mentioned that our interests were different for example for Ukrainian prisoners, national question was very important. And for Russian prisoners, it was it, it didn't exist. They were preoccupied with other with other concerns, of course, about oppression and political uh, oppression uh, in, in in particular. But um, as you pointed out, um, this is a complex um, complex issue, complex question. And um, I, sometimes I feel that we do feel like it's complex because there is so much of um, uh, things which are not known to broader audiences, particularly here in the West. Because as you pointed out when we talk about the Soviet Union right away the implication is that we're talking about Russia and what happened in Russia could be reapplied to all other countries and your book um, demonstrates that it's not true and that we have to dig deeper and to look into each specific country separately because we will find out some uh, well, former Soviet Republic right, right. future uh, future independent countries such as Ukraine you're right and uh, you you know, Natalia, to a degree, I believe uh, the book is, a, um, I would say, a rebuttal to arguments that Russia's hostilities toward Ukraine, uh, its persistent uh, assault uh, on uh, its integrity and the right to exist, uh, its uh, manipulation of, of uh, Ukrainian national historical narratives, right, uh, and the historical truth. Um, are a response to Ukraine's fascism, right? And that's sometimes, that's what people argue, it's threat to Russia um, or Western attempts to, to use Ukraine as a weapon against Russian, uh, Russia. And uh, I believe this book demonstrates um, with absolute clarity uh, that uh, Russia's policies uh, and attitudes toward uh, Ukraine have deep Soviet uh, roots and in fact in fact can be traced to to the ancient history of this region right 
So, and um, another argument that your book makes is that there are multiple ways of resisting the oppressive regime, and there are multiple ways of creating and advancing counter-narratives. Uh, on the other hand, one shouldn't make hasty conclusions when condemning others for uh, not resisting the regime overtly. So would you talk a little bit about the ways in which Ukrainian intelligentsia found ways of subverting the Soviet regime while in many ways avoiding this direct confrontation? Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few uh, people um, such as Vasil Stus, right, who openly confronted the, the, the KGB, the system, and so on and so forth. Uh, others tried to adapt uh, the majority tried to adapt. Why? They were worried about their dearest, I mean, relatives, children. I remember how, and it is just uh, um, uh, not only one case that I'm familiar with, but I remember how uh, my father told me before his um, he passed away, he told me that in 1960. Uh, three, when I was born, uh, he was asked, and he worked for the literary journal proper at this particular moment, um, and um, uh, he was in charge of the uh, Department of Poetry, right? He was the editor. And uh, he was asked by the uh, party authorities to um, come to the UPCOM uh, and to, to have a Chat. And the first question was, we heard, uh, Robert, that you, are, uh, you have a daughter now. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I have a daughter. So you have two children now. He said, yes, I have two children now. And they said, you have to be very careful. So it was just a very direct mm-hmm. and actually not com- camouflage but a very open threat you have to to be very careful in terms of how you approach your uh, responsibilities as an editor uh, of the one of the leading uh, literary journals so uh, of course uh, those threats were issued not only to him but all the uh, to all those people who worked for some sort of cultural institutions Absolutely. Uh, those who were uh, journalists working for, for newspapers, and they are—they uh, were afraid. They feared some kind of, you know, retaliation uh, um, on, on the part of, of the KGB or, or the party. They were uh, afraid that their relatives, as a result of their sort of uh, not some cautious moves they w- will be suffering as a, would be suffering as a result of their um, political or apolitical behavior so it was just always a, a sort of a very thin line uh, and uh, by the way Lynn Viola writes about this beautifully he, she published a few years ago a beautiful article about um, whom uh, we should consider collaborators, mm-hmm. those who d- uh, do not resist the, the existent abusive uh, regime, or those who who who, uh, who try to resist, but passively maybe they are also collaborators. So, and you know, I just. Um, 
sort of arrived to this conclusion that it's extremely difficult, uh, almost impossible to characterize those individuals such as complex individuals, intellectuals actually, such as Bruggen or Tritiakov or Ivan Drach or, or, or some other people. Name We had plenty of them um, to characterize them as, as, uh, as collaborators. Uh, think about, um, for instance, uh, about Ivan Zuba. Many people accused him of, of being a collaborator when he surrendered his, his principles. And by the way, his wife uh, once asked his friends, Zuba's friends, so you think he had to resist what would you have now? You wouldn't have Zuba. Uh, and uh, the volumes of books that he published before and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because he would be dead. So what would you prefer? So that uh, he would resist and would die like uh, like Vasil Stus? And uh, this is a very legitimate question. We're all brave when we um, try to, to think about those uh, times and, and uh, you know, we are trying to accuse those people who seemingly uh, had choice, uh, uh, some kind of choice, but sometimes they did, uh, very often, very frequently, they didn't have any choice. But to resist passively or comply or adjust somehow in order to survive or in order to protect their relatives. So it's just a very complex question to, to answer, but I wouldn't be a judge in, mm -hmm. in this situation. I can by, uh, but uh, ask you a question about a chapter entitled The Labyrinth of Silence and Psychiatric Abuse. Would you talk a little bit about this chapter? Uh, certainly. Um, I was uh, familiar with um, a great wealth of, of literature on this particular topic because a lot of uh, books have been published over the last 30 or 40 or even 50 years in the West, in English. Um, but I wanted to write about this, uh, and uh, I chose a character that uh, um, people know very little about. I mean, it was Viktor Barovsky, and uh, he was just a boy when he began to write. Uh, he was born in Lazava in, in the Kharkiv Oblast. And uh, why him and how I learned about him? Uh, my father shared with me his own experiences with Viktor Barovsky. He learned about him when he was just a boy. And he brought his poems to, to proper. And he asked my father to look at these poems that he just be began to write. Um, and he said, but tell me honestly, should I continue or not? And my father said, come in a week. And I promise you, I will be brutally honest with you, but I will just uh, invite some other writer or poet who will take another look and I will share with you our opinion. Barovsky never came and my father could know that uh, he was arrested. He was first of all uh, expelled from, from the university for his Ukrainian. He spoke exclusively mm -hmm. um, Ukraine, in Ukrainian and uh, the KGB 
discovered his poems. Uh, they, uh, first of all, expelled him from the university, and then they placed him in a psychiatric clinic. Uh, he spent some time in, in Slavinsk, I believe in, in this in famous clinic that we, we heard about. It, it was just like a prison. And then he was transferred to Saburavadacha, which is uh, a, a psychiatric clinic in Kharkiv. I believe he spent there five months. And I began to, to, to investigate this particular figure. To, I wanted to learn more about what happened to him. And uh, believe it or not, I discovered uh, more about what happened to him only after his death. I, I was too late to, to finally trace his sort of um, activities. Uh, when I was teaching at Columbia University, I began to talk to the Ukrainian community, if, if anybody remembered Viktor Borovsky, because he ended up in, in New York. He, the Soviet authorities finally threw him out of the Soviet Union, and he became politically active, uh, first in Canada, and then he moved to, to New York. Uh, and I was, uh, he, unfortunately, he passed away in 2009 from uh, cancer, and I didn't have an opportunity to uh, talk with him. But my father said, when I began to read his poetry, with, which he brought, it was just a little uh, thin notebook, uh, it, as if it was just a, a fresh sort of wind uh, just entered uh, the room. It was so brave. Uh, and his language was so, Ukrainian language was so mature, despite the fact that he was only 16 or 17 mm. at this particular point. Uh, and I was eager to hear recalled, I was eager to talk to him, but just he never came. And my father passed away. He didn't know what happened with Borovsky. Only uh, I investigated the story and I decided to write about this because we cannot lose those interesting, unique voices. Uh, we cannot lose these unique stories that uh, contribute to our understanding about how the system treated those um, creative people in, in Ukraine. So psychiatric clinics, uh, it was just only a tool, became a tool in the, in the 1970s uh, for the Soviet regime to, I mean, that they used to isolate those individuals. So um, that's how this actually chapter was conceived mm -hmm. and born. Yeah, but what you shared um, is a beautiful story, but at the same time, very, very dramatic. Um, so that's sad. Very sad, yes. Um, so how would you summarize the impact of KGB intimidation, not only on the individual, but collective levels as well within the uh, this particular decade, 1960s, 1970s, and beyond? Um, first, uh, I think I mentioned this elsewhere, but um, this sort of metaphor or the idea of this labyrinth um, emerged, actually I heard it from, from many, many writers because they referred to their uh, paths that they um, chose um, as, as labyrinths which were created by the KGB. A lot of people were lost in these labyrinths, a lot of people were arrested, they, they dis some disappeared without a trace, but it's interesting, Natalia, that 
the KGB created those labyrinths for them. And they didn't expect to see that uh, there will be some kind of resistance or uh, these people will um, do just the opposite from what was expected of them. So they resisted more. The more repressions uh, were in Ukraine or the, the, the more uh, violent they became, uh, the more uh, aggressive perhaps the writers became or those who tried to do something. Uh, I mean, resisted somehow the system. And uh, they achieved... Uh, something that they didn't ex actually expect to achieve. Uh, they preserve, they managed to cultivate and, and to preserve this, uh, I would say, uh, the, the, the spirit of, of resistance, the love uh, for, for their culture, for their language. And uh, the KGB, as a result of it, they were lost in, in this labyrinth because they didn't know what to do. They tried to break their friendships. They, they couldn't do this. They tried to um, break the links that the intelligentsia established even with the diasporas, right? Uh, the Jewish diaspora or the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, in, in the United States. And they couldn't do this. They, they were unsuccessful as, as a result of, of all these efforts, uh, all those investments in, into these uh, active measures, they, they, they failed. They were successful maybe for a very brief period of time. Uh, but what they did, what they did, they just sort of managed to preserve, help preserve this particular uh, spirit of of nationalism, if you if you will, or of love to for for their uh, for their Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, can I ask you what you're working on right now? <laughs> uh, sure, I'm I'm just Natalia. I'm writing, and this is just a, a is, it's going to be a lengthy process because I'm writing a book about uh, Russian active measures. It's a euphemism for for covert action, for, for covert operations. Um, but uh, these operations um, are transnational. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to look at uh, what the KGB uh, during the Soviet era was doing um, in, in many, many places and locations to, to um, undermine, for instance, the um, anti-Soviet human rights movement, uh, which emerged in the 1960s and 70s in the West, uh, and other operations, because for, for this particular purpose now, um, I have documents, I'm equipped uh, to, to, to write this book, and uh, I'm terrified, uh, because I'm not sure that I will ever, uh, will ever be able able to, to continue my research in Ukraine because what they're doing, they're methodically, systematically, they're destroying uh, the, the archives in Ukraine. So hopefully we, we will manage to preserve at least some, some of it. Well, and so that's, that's the book that I'm writing. Well, I'm looking forward to a new book then. <laughs> well,
Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Olga, for this wonderful, um, illuminating conversation. And of course, uh, thank you for sharing your personal memories. Uh, and um, uh, thank you for, for the book, uh, for, which uh, offers a meticulously researched uh, material and that really complicates our understanding about uh, cultural, political, and historical landscapes in Soviet Ukraine and in the Soviet uh, Union in general. Thank you so much. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you, Natalia. Today I spoke with Olga Bertelsen, author of In the Labyrinth of the KGB, Ukraine's Intelligentsia in the 1960s-1970s, published by Lexington Books in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.